Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast. Episode 4, 681, The New State and the Eternal Challenges. Now before we start, I'd like to apologize for the delay on this episode. I won't go into details, but needless to say, a lot of outside circumstances conspired against us for the past few weeks. But from here on out, things should be roughly back on the same schedule. So thanks for your patience. Now in the last episode, we discussed the complex and chaotic series of events which led to the breakup of the old Great Bulgaria based around modern Ukraine, and we saw how and why the Slavs and the Proto-Bulgarians under Asparuch migrated down into the Balkans, and how the Byzantines failed to stop them in spectacular style. Now we find ourselves at the genesis of a new European state, of a new empire. Now there's something very interesting about this first Bulgarian state. For more than 1,300 years ago, the problems which confronted Asparuch and the leaders of this new state are remarkably similar to the problems which confront Bulgaria throughout its history. In fact, many of these problems persist today. This, I believe, is a paramount example of why it is both important and interesting to study this history. A history fan I may be, not all history interests me. Sometimes there really is information which is barely relevant. But it's connections like these which serve to remind us why it can be so vital to understand it. So when I lay out these problems facing Bulgaria in 681, I want you to keep them in mind throughout this whole series. They are problems which will be with us for the duration of the podcast. The first of these is geography. As a physician Abraham Verghese once explained, geography is destiny. Now, I believe history is an almost infinitely complex thing, but this is certainly close to one of its core maxims. To study history without a sense of geography is to study language without grammar. It's entirely incomplete. In this sense, I really can't recommend enough seeing the places that you study, visiting them, looking at the geography for yourself. Nothing can replace those sensory memories which arise when you read a historical account of place about a place where you've been, and you remember it. So what about geography? Well, as we talked about in episode one, the Balkan Peninsula is wide open to invaders and yet extremely fragmented. For the new Bulgarian state, this meant that finding natural border or natural barriers was going to be extremely difficult. Now, fortunately, two cardinal directions were pretty easy. First, and most obviously, the Black Sea provided an easy natural barrier to the east. To the south, the Balkan Mountains were a fairly obvious border with the Byzantines. The harsh mountain cliffs and the deep forests make for an excellent defensive boundary, as we'll see again and again. But to the north and the west, things were much less clear. For example, the Carpathian Mountains provided an initial border with the Avars, but soon, irresistible opportunities would push the Bulgarians far beyond these mountains, far into the open Pannonian plain. To the west lay seemingly infinite mountains, and eventually the Adriatic Sea, and there were no real clear natural borders in this direction. And so the question was born, 
the question which would cause so many wars and haunt the diplomats of Europe, especially throughout the 19th and 20th century. The question of where to draw the borders in the Balkans. Bulgaria faced this question almost immediately. It was additionally difficult to find firm defensible borders because of the near constant warfare of the next few centuries. When you're talking about losing territory regularly and fighting regularly, it's even harder to set your boundaries. So even if you find a nice natural perimeter, well, your neighbors might not quite agree with that perimeter. But the new Bulgarian state did have at least one solution for this problem. It built defensive ditches or embankments, at times hundreds and hundreds of kilometers long, to mark its territory. Of course, the general concept wasn't new. Structures like Hadrian's Wall and the Great Wall of China were already centuries old by this point. But the Bulgarian works were a bit different, much less ambitious, and likely just as symbolic as something like the Great Wall is viewed to be today, as well as Hadrian's Wall. So what were these embankments? Now, generally they consisted of a deep ditch facing outwards towards the enemies, foreigners, and whatnot, and an earthen wall constructed next to that ditch from the excavated earth for making the ditch. Though these constructions were probably not so impressive in small patches, the examples which stretched clear across entire plains from horizon to horizon must have been quite a sight. Although their actual use as a defensive works was limited, they were definitely important symbols. They were symbols of permanence, symbols of us and them. Now bear in mind that this is happening just at the end of the great period of migrations, which has been going on for a few hundred years. So many tribes, states, and empires had come and gone in a short period of time. Therefore, it was absolutely necessary to project an image of permanence, an image of stability. And nothing says permanence and stability like some nice defensive works. So where were these embankments? What were the boundaries of this first Bulgarian state? For reference, of course, as usual, check out the maps on the page of this episode on bghistorypodcast.com. We can see a state which includes Dobruja, the area to the east of the great northward curve of the Danube, the great plain between the Danube River and the Balkan Mountains, the plain between the Danube and the Carpathians, modern Wallachia, part of Romania, and some territory along the Black Sea north of the Danube. This is the basic outline of this very first Bulgarian state. But as I mentioned, these borders aren't going to last for too long, so don't bother trying to memorize that image, because it's going to change a lot. So essentially, the Bulgarian state at this time is sandwiched between the Balkan and Carpathian Mountains, following the Danube from around the Iron Gates, a famous impassable rapid on the river until a dam was built in 1972 at least, to the Black Sea. Pretty straightforward, right? So, also on the geography front, the new state had the fortune of controlling a variety of trading routes. There were important north-south trading routes running through the Balkan Mountains, as well as routes along the Danubian Plain. Bulgaria today is also at such a point, with large amounts of overland trade from Greece and Turkey north of the rest of Europe. Granted, you can get an idea of the state of the highways today from a common joke about the main highway running through the country called the Thracian Highway. So, why is it called the Thracian Highway? Well, because they were the ones who started the construction, of course. 
But still, this is one of these examples I'm talking about, aside from the humor, of where geography has continued to kind of define the advantages and disadvantages of Bulgaria throughout its history. This key position along a lot of these kind of inter-Balkan trade routes is something that exists in 681 and which is clearly visible today. Now, the next major problem to face this new Bulgarian state was centered around how to build a new state on such a divided population, such a heterogeneous population. Now, in general, the majority of the population were the Slavs, the peasants, essentially, while the Bulgarians made up the aristocracy, a much smaller groups. The two groups had different customs, religious practices, and languages. Now, importantly, after the Treaty of 681, the Slavic tribes living in the territory Bulgarians now controlled declared their loyalty to Asperuch. But there was no way this loyalty would last unless these divisions were eventually overcome. I think anyone paying even a bit of attention to history and politics can understand that those kinds of societal divisions are unsustainable in the long run. Yet at the same time, any attempt to merge these two groups is going to provoke serious backlash. So in essence, Asporuch and his successors will be left in a pretty tough spot. Leave the Slavs as a separate group, and they'll be a dangerous fifth column forever. Assimilate them, and provoke an intense cultural backlash. Now, ultimately, the Bulgarians will choose the latter option, and ultimately they will be successful. Although, in the end, it will actually be the proto-Bulgarians being integrated into the Slavs more than the other way around. But these ethnic divisions, in many ways, defined not only the focus of Bulgarian policy towards integration, but the division of labor within the new state. While the state was being governed by its literate and educated Byzantine subjects, as opposed to the largely illiterate proto-Bulgarian class of warriors, whose job it was to serve the Khan in times of war and to keep order. So, again, these are not just ethnic divisions, sort of religious divisions and cultural divisions, they're general divisions of who does what within society. So taking this division into account, the use of the Byzantine administrative practices makes a lot of sense. Finally, the Slavs form the peasant class and an infantry in all military endeavors. However, some of the leaders of the Slavic tribes incorporated into the new state were admitted into the lower echelons of the proto-Bulgarian aristocracy, demonstrating that these divisions were more practical than simply ethnic-based. That is, if a Slav could demonstrate his competence in leading his tribe within the state, he could certainly be promoted. Now, in addition, there was a geographic dimension to these ethnic divisions, with the proto-Bulgarians settling mostly around Dobruja and around the southern bank of the Danube, and the Slavs initially living in quite separated areas from the proto-Bulgarians. But this division, like the rest of them, would slowly break down over time. Now, unfortunately, we know very little about the role of the Hellenized Thracian population, the people who lived in this area before the Slavs or the proto-Bulgarians arrived. But in general, this trouble of integrating the diverse populations of the Balkans is a problem which was faced by Bulgaria in 681 and which is faced by Bulgaria today. From Roma to Turks, Vlachs to Bulgarian Mohammedans, Bulgaria's history continues to be defined in part by its relationship to its minorities. Now, there's also the issue of a navy. The Bulgarian navy, 
or more than often the lack thereof, will quickly establish itself as an incredibly important, if often overlooked, force in Bulgaria's history. As R.J. Crampton puts it in his Concise History of Bulgaria, quote, the lack of a navy ruled out expansion along the Black Sea coast, either to the north or to the south, just as the chaos of the steppe area made impossible any territorial gains to the northeast. The natural direction of movement for the Bulgarian state was therefore to the northwest and to the southwest. End quote. Now, we can notice that the early Bulgarians left the city of Odessos, modern Varna, to the Byzantines. And this is an interesting example of this, because evidently the proto-Bulgarians didn't see enough of a reason to take this vital port, demonstrating their lack of appreciation of the sea and its importance. Now, in the defense of these early Bulgarians, coming from the steppe as they did, they hardly had the technology readily available for advanced shipbuilding. For the same reason, they were not exactly predisposed to being on the water. Sea legs don't come easily to men who are raised on horses. And finally, the early Bulgarian rulers no doubt understood that to attempt to construct a Black Sea fleet would only add one more line to the list of things pushing them towards conflict with the Byzantines. Now, I suppose they calculated for these reasons that it was best to leave the sea to them. But this would have dramatic effects. The 20th century theory of Alfred Mahan, uh, that without a navy a country could never be a great power aside, a navy was certainly an important, if not vital, component to being a great Mediterranean power. As Crampton notes, the lack of a navy pushed Bulgaria to expand in certain ways, but it also pre prevented the Bulgarians from transitioning from a purely land power and a purely regional power to a true Mediterranean power, undoubtedly limiting their in, uh, ultimate stance on the map of Europe. Now, finally, the last major issue facing the new Bulgarian state was its relationship with its neighbors, particularly the Byzantine Empire. Considering the Bulgarians had just fought a war with the Byzantines, this issue was not as clear-cut as it may seem. Just prior to that, they had been allies, and the empire, at this point, remains a major threat. Thus, I define the relationship between Bulgaria and Byzantines somewhat lightheartedly as a frenemy kind of situation. The Bulgarians might attempt to wipe the Byzantines off the map one year and rush their aid another. This is a relationship which is going to go on for hundreds of years. But beyond that, who were Bulgaria's natural allies? Groups like the Franks in Western Europe were just too far away to care very much, and in the fluid situation around Eastern and Central Europe, there were no sure friends. For example, to the north and northeast, a rotating cast of tribes, including but not limited to the Khazars, the Pechniks, the Magyars, the Avars, and the Kievan Rus, provided no stability on that front. And those are only the groups which predominate in that direction for the period of the first Bulgarian Empire, let alone the second one. Much like the history of the modern Balkans, every time territory is gained, it's going to bring about some resentment. Uh, it's going to invite some new challenge from a foreign power and going to further complicate issues of the borders. One look at the history of the Balkan Wars in the early 20th century, and it's clear that natural or eternal allies are going to be sorely missed for the duration of Bulgaria's history. So here we are at a general understanding of four issues which have confronted the Bulgarian state 
in 681, in which, besides the border issues, the EU and NATO have more or less fixed that today, continue to confront it to this day. In many ways, this is a remarkable level of continuity. Look at that early, look at early English, French, or even American states and compare them to those countries today. The major issues facing them are really quite different. So, in the face of these challenges, what happened after 681? As I mentioned, one of the first orders of business was to build a new capital. Thus, the city of Pliska was founded just north of the Balkan Mountains in the same year. Dennis Hupchik describes this new city in his book, The Balkans from Constantinople to Communism, as, quote, a large area enclosed by ramparts, with, a, with the ruler's habitations and assorted utility structures concentrated in the center, resembled more of a steppe winter encampment turned into a permanent settlement than it did a typical Roman Balkan city, end quote. So while the new Bulgarian rulers consciously attempted to put down roots in their new homeland, the cultural influence of the steppe remained, especially considering the fact that Pliska essentially did evolve from a fortified camp into a city. Now eventually, this new city would encompass around 24 square kilometers. It was surrounded by an earth embankment and a moat, much like those on the border of the new state. The size of the city and the nature of these defenses ensured that in the case of danger, the surrounding people could seek refuge in the city's large defenses. Within this enclosure was the inner city. This area was protected by large stone walls, well constructed, 10 meters tall and two and a half meters thick. With towers included, the defenders of the inner city had a good base from which to repel any attackers. However, as we'll soon see, this will not stave off Bulgaria's most determined foes. Finally, within this inner city was a state administration and the massive 1,400 square meter throne room. Fortunately, you can still see the ruins of Pliska in Bulgaria today. So I encourage you, as I mentioned, with the importance of geography and seeing things, to check them out if you can. So yet, so despite these uh, steppe influences, which were evident in the layout of Pliska, the new state was from a very early point developing a kind of hybrid culture. Stone inscriptions from this period are generally writ written in Greek with Greek letters, and with Byzantine titles to describe the men listed. Despite the state-building tradition of the Proto-Bulgarians, it was simply too convenient to adopt the administrative structure of the Byzantines. Asperuch is also credited with establishing what is now the modern city of Selistra on the Danube around this time. Again, showing how the Proto-Bulgarians are trying to put down roots and found new cities. Now, the sources tend to say little about the remainder of the reign of Asperuch after 681. We can assume that once peace was established with the Byzantines, with tribute paid to Asperuch out of the Byzantine purse, of course, he was likely very busy establishing a state system and building his capital. While I would have loved to know more about how he went about this, I believe the chroniclers probably found it to be a bit too boring, and so Khan Asperuch, the first leader of the first Bulgarian state, dies in the year 700. Now he likely died fighting the Khazars on the Danube, or maybe the Dnieper. He had been Khan of the first Bulgarian state for 19 years, and the leader of his branch of the Proto-Bulgarians for many more. Now, if you'd like to see how communism viewed Asperuch, 
you can find a four and a half hour film released in 1981 to mark the 1300th anniversary of Bulgarian statehood, which is simply called Asparuch. There also appears to be a vastly inferior 90 minute version in English. His successor was Han Terbel, who took power that same year. Terbel will see Bulgaria through horrible wars, horrible losses, and yet come out a maker of emperors and with the title Savior of Europe. We'll spend the next episode diving fully into Terville and his roller coaster of a reign. I want to thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by Martin Christoph. The audio engineer and composer of our theme music is Teddy Raven, and the story is written by me, Eric Halsey. Help us spread the word by liking us on Facebook, writing a review on iTunes, or tweeting about us. I'm proud to say that we now have a five-star average rate on iTunes. It's great to see those stars next to our podcast. So thanks. Also, check out our website at bghistorypodcast.com, where you can find useful references that will come along with each episode. Now, again, if you think we're doing an awesome job with this podcast, despite this long delay, we've got a nice little button on the website that says Donate. There's really nothing like the encouragement that comes from knowing your listeners care enough about your project to donate. With the latest donations made by a friend of the podcast, thanks for your support, your financial and verbal support. We're getting more energized by the day and can't wait to jump back in and start making excellent content for you guys. So until next time, uspech, or in English, good luck.